0: the dna of fraud episode one theranos today's podcast is part of a new series about fraud not of the common or garden variety but of the mercifully rare species of the genus one might call massive scams those where one can marvel at the sheer chutzpah of the perpetrators at the same time as utterly decrying the harm they inflicted upon investors and often the public at large. My thesis is that great frauds throughout history share exactly the same DNA. They all have the same six constituent elements. One, the fraudster is charismatic, or at the very least mysterious, and preferably both. They need to be marketing and sales savvy. They need to be highly focused. But really, though, they have to be a psychopath, though not necessarily a violent one. Just callous, unemotional, and morally depraved. 2. The lie at the heart of the fraud has to be a whopper. If you're going to fib, fib very large. 3. The objectives of the great fraudsters are, of course, personal gain, but usually some combination of money, reputation, and the adrenaline rush of beating the system. Four, the fraudster involves high profile and highly credible supporters, board members, clients, or all three. Five, the duped investors suspend disbelief in their own search for mostly financial gain, but also a little of the kudos of being involved with something on trend. Six, frauds are eventually and inevitably rumbled. The fraudster is disgraced and, interestingly enough, often has been entirely instrumental in their own downfall, as they come to believe their own propaganda and take things just that little bit too far. After all, by their nature, fraudsters have outsized egos. In short, whatever the era and whatever the state of technology, all frauds are essentially the same. The only thing we learn from history is, well, nothing at all when it comes to fraud, apparently. This is the first in a series of six podcasts that will each focus on a single great fraud. I'm starting with the latest touchstone fraudster, Elizabeth Holmes, and her claim of blood testing breakthrough technology developed by her Silicon Valley company, Theranos, which by the way, was derived from combining two words, therapy and diagnosis. This ended up being ironic as ultimately the company could do neither. So the first element, the fraudster has to have an aura. There is no doubt that Elizabeth Holmes is a remarkable woman. She is incredibly focused with an unblinking and somewhat scary manic stare but an unbelievable work ethic and a very deep voice. Though a prodigious and bright student, she dropped out of her chemical engineering course at Stanford in 2004 at the age of 19. Determined to become a biotech entrepreneur and, I think, with a genuine desire to make a difference to people's lives. Her plan? Well, to start a company that would prevent major diseases through early and, above all, easy detection by a machine that would be available to everyone. However, when she presented her idea to the magnificent Phyllis Gardner, a highly acclaimed clinical pharmacologist and professor of medicine at Stanford, she was told in words of very few syllables that her idea was not physically possible, a conclusion shared over time by countless other medical professors and professionals. Holmes, however, was undaunted. But in a sense, the seeds of the scam were planted right here. Though her concept was not fraudulent at this point, the extreme difficulty of making her dream reality ultimately led to the necessity to tread the slippery path of fraud, as we will see. At its peak in 2015, Theranos had some 700 employees. I've seen a video of Holmes in town hall or all-employee meetings, and she is truly charismatic. The employees, for a good while at least, were almost cult-like in their following of Elizabeth. They were clearly drinking vats full of the Theranos Kool-Aid. They believed whatever Elizabeth said. As we will see, Holmes is not only a highly skilled presenter, but she must be an accomplished poker player, in that she can tell out and out whopping untruths with a completely straight face. So we've ticked the first box on the great fraud trail. Now, the second element of the Holmes fraud, the whopper that was told. Fundamentally, the lie was in two parts. One, that the traditional way of taking and testing blood samples is obsolete. It is too painful expensive and ineffective and second that it could be replaced with something much cheaper easier and more effective that involved less pain and inconvenience to the patient Holmes set out to achieve this by recreating a blood laboratory in a box approximately the size of a Hewlett Packard printer instead of going to the doctor rolling up your sleeve and having a relatively significant amount of blood extracted by a large needle in your artery, then waiting days and days for the result and paying a large bill, you could simply prick a finger and insert a tiny blood sample into a Theranos Edison box, which the company promised one day would be in every home in America. No long needles and no medical professionals, and very speedy results, better yet, The Theranos tests could detect conditions such as cancer and diabetes. Absent the charismatic Theranos leaderine and the whirlwind of excitement she whipped up around her product, we would all, wouldn't we, have had a number of questions. I mean, a whole laboratory in a box of any size would be remarkable, but using a tiny vial of blood on which to run 200 tests, well, I don't think you have to be a person of medicine to scratch your head over that one. As my mother has always told me, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. But by the way, naming the box an Edison was marvelous from a PR standpoint. Any classic fraudster move, associate your product with one of the greatest investors of all time. But even the best lies are rarely enough on their own. The fertilizer for the Theranos lie was that very few people enjoy having blood tests taken. I myself usually come close to fainting, or indeed waiting for the results, uh, or yet paying an egregious amount of money in the private medical world. There was therefore a vast and receptive audience for the product, which would in turn act as balm for prospective financial backers. Now let's look at the third element of the fraud, the fraudster's objectives. So what was Holmes's goal? There is perhaps a clue in a letter she wrote to her father at the age of nine. She declared that what she, quote, really wanted out of life is to discover something new, something that mankind didn't know was possible to do. Holmes's parents spent much of their careers as bureaucrats on Capitol Hill, though, interestingly enough, her father worked for a while at Enron. The BBC was told by a neighbour that they were very interested in status and lived for connections. Her great-great-grandfather founded Fleischmann's Yeast, which changed America's bread industry. and The family was very conscious about its lineage, the same neighbour said. I'm not sure I'd want such a neighbour, would you? It seems, then, that she was driven first and foremost by a desire to be the Steve Jobs of biotech even adopting black polo-neck sweaters as her signature outfit. By the way, a clue to Elizabeth's personality is that her closet was full of multiple versions of the exact same outfit, her premise being that this saved her the time that she might otherwise take to decide what to wear. From the pictures I have seen, the closet is impeccably laid out, which for me is in itself a red flag. Now, if we were cynical... We might also suppose that she would not have been averse to amassing a large fortune along the way, perhaps to fund an infinite number of black polar necks But I have read enough to believe that she was primarily driven by a desire to be recognized globally as someone who made a massive contribution to the world, and also as a rarity, a woman leader of a Silicon Valley startup that becomes a unicorn. A unicorn is a private company, that attains a valuation in excess of a billion dollars the monetization of the Theranos miracle was I suspect seen by her simply as a means of keeping score rather like a grade point average that is beloved of US universities so to element number four associate yourself with the right people powerful people were enchanted by Ms. Holmes a handsome blonde though this probably did not have an impact on her almost exclusively male backers. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary George Shultz, media tycoon Rupert Murdoch, America's richest family, the Waltons, think Walmart and Walgreens, and Larry Ellison, founder of Oracle, all invested. Betsy DeVos, Trump's education secretary, reportedly invested $100 million, the sole woman investor. Henry Kissinger and Jim Mad Dog Mattis, and a former director of the Center for Disease Control, sat on her board, along with a slew of other luminaries, though not all at the same time. All were household names, and all but perhaps one, with no relevant knowledge or experience of biotech whatsoever. This phenomenon is Groucho Marx in reverse. You remember one of his many great lines, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Here, lots of people wanted to join Elizabeth's club. I mean, Henry Kissinger. It helps a lot that many high net worth individuals are of a certain age and thus instantly associated with the names Holmes attached to her enterprise. One of my personally personal favorite aspects of the Theranos story is that one of the most enthusiastic endorsements it received was from the then Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, who visited the Theranos headquarters in 2015. He veritably gushed. Quote, This is the laboratory of the future. What's most impressive to me is you're not only making these lab tests more accessible, you're charging historically low prices, which is a small fraction of what is charged now, while maintaining the highest standards and empowering people, whether they live in the barrio or a mansion, putting them in a position to take control of their own health, unquote. A typically crisp and eloquent utterance from the current president and leader of the free world, though I do wonder whether American is his first language at times. Biden also told Holmes that he and President Barack Obama Share your vision of a healthcare paradigm focused on prevention. Apparently, Obama and Biden were blissfully unaware that what Ms. Holmes was actually selling was the biotech equivalent of snake oil. But the media jumped on the Theranos bandwagon with relish. The magazine Inc. reported, somewhat ironically, although unknowingly, as part of a puff piece on Holmes as follows. Theranos' new headquarters is hardly a haven of hospitality. While the building is being renovated, there is no lobby for visitors, who are greeted by an NDA. When Joe Biden arrived at the company's sprawling, unmarked manufacturing facility, journalists who had been waiting for more than an hour were abruptly escorted out after a mere ten minutes of remarks. There are so many red flags piling up here, It is remarkable that no one was asking questions until it was far, far too late. Holmes rode the media bandwagon with aplomb. Theranos was not only medically brilliant, it was cool in the way that only tech startups in Silicon Valley can be. She appeared on magazine covers, including Forbes and Fortune. In 2015, Time named her as one of the 100 most influential people of the year. Think about the timing of this when we come back to it a bit later. But in a way, Time's assessment was right, but in a rather different mode than they were thinking. The New York Times lifestyle magazine oozed as follows. Since dropping out of Stanford's School of Engineering, she has spent nearly every waking moment working on bioengineering breakthroughs. She only pauses in her work to run seven miles a day there was seemingly no end to the plaudits. Even scientists were not immune to the Holmes magic. A great quote from a fortune puff piece was from a Stanford chemical engineering professor called Channing Robertson, who incidentally became a Theranos advisor. When I finally connected with what Elizabeth fundamentally is, I realized that I could have just as well been looking into the eyes of a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates. I'm not sure why he was gazing dreamily into her eyes or what he meant by the fundament of Elizabeth. I will leave it to your imaginations. The slick marketing of both Theranos and of Holmes herself was essential to the raising of capital for the business. I have personal experience of raising money. One of the first questions a prospective investor or board member asks is who else is involved? Elizabeth had great answers for this question thus she was able to raise approximately seven hundred and twenty four million dollars in private equity or venture capital between 2005 and 2017 and a large dollop of debt on top of this by 2015 Theranos was valued at nine point five billion dollars there is a whole separate podcast to be made on the valuation of private startup businesses, but on paper, Ms. Holmes was by this point, allegedly worth $4.75 billion, the youngest self-made billionaire in recorded history. Not bad, but in itself, a bit of a fraud. She was never actually worth anything like this sum of money, but we can perhaps understand why Elizabeth came to believe in her own propaganda pretty much the whole world, was fating her as the wunderkind of biotech. Mrs. Holmes's choice of operational business partners was somewhat less successful. She hired one Ramesh Sonny Balwani as chief operating officer, and he shortly thereafter became her bedroom partner also, though he was 19 years her senior. Holmes, after the rumble, which we'll hear about shortly, accused her ex-boyfriend of emotional and sexual abuse at the time of the alleged fraud crimes, impairing her mental state. And, of course, she fired him. Mr. Balwani denies the allegations and has called the claims outrageous. In the immortal words from the Profumo trial, well, he would, wouldn't he? So now to the fifth element. The suspension of disbelief among a swathe of investors who apparently piled money into Theranos without undertaking much in the way of due diligence. Due diligence is the digging investors do to validate the bona fides of the business and its management. One of the ways Holmes headed this off at the pass was to say that no investor was allowed to see or receive details of the technology behind the Edison box. It was a case of, well, here's a professional-looking box, but I'm not not telling you what's in it. It is highly abnormal in my experience not to ask the what's in the box question, and it is perhaps the ultimate testament to Elizabeth's selling skills. This was a biotech investment, and as an investor you would ordinarily need to have some form of scientific valuation of validation of the product. I don't think you need to be an investment genius to work out that this is central to the investment decision. Of course, Ms. Holmes greased the fundraising poll by using what Australians wonderfully refer to as U-Butte financial forecasts. That is to say, highly optimistic ones. For example, in 2006, management projected that the company would be profitable by the end of 2007 and would go public in 2008. In 2006, Theranos had no sales and thus no income. By the first quarter of 2007, according to the projections, sales would be 4.6 million dollars. But by the end of 2008, a highly improbable 67 million. On the back of this, though, she raised 30 million dollars of equity. So called hockey stick growth projections are always, in my experience, treated with healthy skepticism by the investment community. Just not in this case, apparently. A number of startup investors explained their suspension of disbelief by saying that they admired Elizabeth Holmes's drive and work ethic. These are necessary but insufficient to underpin a venture capital investment. When you watch Elizabeth giving presentations to roomfuls of people, she reminds me of a teleevangelist. In fact, she's just like the Messiah. But to borrow from the outstanding film Life of Brian, it turned out that she was not the Messiah but a very naughty girl. And so, to the final element, the rumble. Fraudsters often die by their own hand, as I said earlier. They get so drunk on their power over investors and clients that they believe they cannot possibly be caught. Often, they adopt the royal we, as you may recall Mrs Thatcher used to do in her pomp. But the Apollo 13 moment for Elizabeth Holmes came when she overreached even herself. She made a deal to open wellness centers in Walgreens stores all across America. You'll recall that the store's owners were heavy investors in her company. The idea was that therapy and diagnosis a la Theranos would be available to all those willing merely to have a finger pricked and at a bargain basement price to boot. The rollout was first tested in the Arizona stores The slight catch was that there were no Edison machines that actually worked at this point, and as we might have guessed, never would be. A mere detail such as this did not daunt Elizabeth. The centres were advertised as a place where patients could have blood either taken from a tiny finger stick or a micro-sample taken from traditional methods, eliminating the need for larger needles and numerous vials of blood. Holmes assured Walgreens that the machines would shortly arrive. But in the meantime, Theranos would transport the blood samples to their head office laboratory, where their proprietary gizmos could conduct the 200 individual tests. This was not true either. At the outset, the blood taking was in the traditional way. And in fact, the machines used by Theranos were those of other manufacturers, such as Siemens, a combination of the short turnaround for results promised at the Wellness Center and the underqualified lab technicians at the Theranos Laboratory meant that there were many misdiagnoses. Testimony from Holmes's subsequent trial included a woman who received a false positive result that suggested she had HIV antibodies, and another with a history of miscarriages who was told her pregnancy had failed, despite it later resulting in a healthy baby. Holmes resisted and ignored advice from her own experts that the tests would sometimes show up PSAs while testing women's blood. A clear error, as PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen and can only come from males. It transpires that at a certain point, and I'm not sure exactly when this was, Holmes came to know that her erstwhile professor at Stanford was in fact entirely correct. What she set out to do... Was simply not physically, or indeed medically, possible. But by then, she had a reputation to uphold, and a lot of investors, board members, and other luminaries to keep sweet, as well as her first major client, Walgreens. She just had to keep all the plates spinning. And to do that, she had to ignore the facts that were in plain sight in front of her. But I think it is right to wonder whether, when the whole world is heaping praise on you, And throwing money at you, that maybe, just maybe, you are actually right, despite all the data that points in the opposite direction. Shakespeare, through his character Hamlet, called this the vicious mole of nature, and I reckon he was on to something. This caused her simply to de-emphasize or outright dismiss any Theranos employee who dared to ask the questions that needed answering, the very questions to which Holmes actually had no answers. The rumble was actually triggered in the end in 2015 also, the same year as the company's peak valuation, as you will recall. A whistleblower employee raised concerns about Theranos' flagship testing device, the Edison. This was picked up by the Wall Street Journal writer John Carreyrou, who penned a series of damning exposes, claiming the results pumped out by Edison were unreliable and that the firm had been using commercially available machines made by other manufacturers for most of its testing. True on both counts. Now, the Empress's clothes were doubted. The world seemed to wake up to the fraud. Lawsuits piled up. Partners cut ties. The flip side of associating with very high profile individuals is that such folks typically want to dissociate themselves very rapidly from something that fails or worse appears to be non-kosher. In 2016, U.S. regulators banned Holmes from operating a blood testing service for two years. In 2018, Theranos was dissolved. Theranos and Holmes were the subject of civil lawsuits. The company spent a staggering $300 million on legal fees. But worse was to come. Holmes was arrested, along with her erstwhile partner, Mr. Balwani, on criminal charges of wire fraud, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Prosecutors claimed that she knowingly misled patients about the tests and vastly exaggerated the firm's performance to financial backers. Holmes was released on bail in 2019 and got married to William Billy Evans, 27 and thus 10 years her junior, but handily an heir to the Evans group chain of hotels they had a son in July 2021. There were suggestions that being a new mother could influence the jury's decision. That appears not to have been the case, although Emily D. Baker, a former deputy district attorney for Los Angeles, told the BBC before the verdict that the judge might take it into account if Holmes was found guilty. As the Theranos scandal reached trial, Commentators said it was remarkable how tightly Holmes clung to her original story, and people who knew her say they doubt that she has changed. The trial ended recently, but interestingly enough, after months of arguments and seven days of deliberation, the jury convicted the former Theranos CEO on only four of the 11 counts of conspiracy and fraud. So there we have it. The shooting star that was Elizabeth Holmes has fizzled out, but you would not bet on her making some kind of return to the firmament, I don't think. The story still has legs. Hollywood is working on films and TV series, and I understand two of the actresses slated to play Holmes are two of my personal favourites, the marvellous Amanda Seyfried and Jennifer Lawrence. I hope you found this of interest. If you'd like to delve further into the morass, I commend both John Carreru's book, Bad Blood, and the HBO documentary on Theranos. And do please tune in for the next riveting podcast on Great Fords Down the Ages, which will be published soon.